This is James M. Ward here, and D&D experts like myself love listening to the Save or Die podcast because I learn something new every time I tune in. You burst through the door to find a small room filled with gold and jewels and a red dragon. He starts to bring Save or Die! Welcome to the Save or Die Podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Save or Die, episode 124. With you, as always, is one of the skeletons in the sarcophagus, DM Mike. <laughs> and me is the uh, giant octopus in the grotto, DM Jim. That's right. I'm an octopus in a grotto with no good reason to be here. <laughs> That's right. And surfing the underground river, we have DM Liz... And we are joined specially by the fourth level magic user trying to take over the dungeon level, Xenopus, otherwise known as Zach. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on. He runs the Xenopus archives, speaking of Holmes basic D&D, and we'll be delving into that a lot more as the show goes on. But first, do we have any emails? Get down, get down, get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man! Oddly enough, yes. Alrighty. Well, our first email for today is from Dwarven Ale. Dude! One third and, less calories than the regular ale. But not one third less alcohol. Mm. Anyway, Dwarven Ale writes, Dear DM Liz and Henchmen. <laughs> You're my We're henchmen! <laughs> That's so much closer to the truth than he knows. Cruelly, true. <laughs> In episode 113, DM Mike makes reference to the original bugbear illustration found in the Greyhawk supplement. A year or so ago, I ran my group through an encounter with a group of them, but I needed some minis to properly give them a visual. Beheading some Mage Knight minis and adding my own Sculpey-crafted pumpkin heads, and voila, I give you the bugbear or as pronounced by the local populace, Beug Bears, or just plain old Beug. I ran them as bugbears with a 1d6 cone attack of pumpkin seeds with slippery pumpkin innards as a hazard. <laughs> it terrified the players of my DCC game and was great fun. Taco. Ah, well, I'm glad you're not the only one who uses Sculpey. So, <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And uh, I always liked those. I mean, you know, once you get the Monster Manual bugbears, it's like, well, you know, they're okay and all, but those original ones with the flaming pumpkin heads, it's like, now that's a bugbear. So I'm glad somebody's using it. And I'm sure they really panicked if any of the pumpkin seeds got stuck inside them or something. They might be afraid it'll do like an aliens. and <laughs> It'll grow inside them. Hey, that could be how the bugbears reproduce. That would be cool. Well, you remember when we were kids and they, they always used to say, if you swallow a watermelon seed, a watermelon will grow inside of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Or was that just a southern thing, Jim? No, no. They, t they told us that in Kentucky when I was growing up, too. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, then, uh, thanks for the email, Dwarven Ale. Even if you mentioned DCC, we'll forgive you this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mage Knight, too. Good use of an old Mage Knight mini. Cut the heads off. <laughs> you know, they had, a, um, they had an actual pumpkin-headed mini back in the 70s. And, Did they? Um, John Eric Holmes had some of them. I've seen a photo of some of his minis, and he had a, one or two of those. Awesome. I wondered if he made those at home or he bought them somewhere. No, it was a, it wasn't a, one of the companies made it as a mini. I, I can't recall which one it was, but. Oh, thank you, because I thought I remembered seeing it. It had to be archived. They were the guys that always did that kind of nutty stuff, like a whole Star Wars line without getting authorized by Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have it. I have a picture of it on one of my blog posts, and uh, so if you if you go on my blog and search for bugbears, you may find it. Well, I may have cool. to change my answer to one of the questions in the next email then. <laughs> I was I think just thinking that awesome. myself. <laughs> like, oh, that would be cool to have. <laughs> well, we'll drop uh, a link to that blog post in the show notes. Indeed. Okay. Well, our next email is from DM Kojo. And Kojo. he writes, hi, sod friends. I wanted to know the answer to three questions regarding your no doubt large gaming collection. Five. Three. Three so. One, what is one of your most treasured items in your collection? Two, what is one item in your collection that was not made for D&D but that you have used in a D&D game? Gamma World doesn't count since the conversion was in the DMG. <laughs> and three, what is one item that has eluded you and still is not part of your collection? And he goes on to say that for questions number one and number three, original white box stuff does not count. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just all kinds of picky, picky, know, picky question. Right? You figured it was too easy, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, well, let's do this like uh, the top five. We'll rotate around and Zach can go last, so that'll give him time to think. The first question was the most prized... Yeah, what is one of your most treasured items in your gaming collection? I would say the North Texas RPG Con reprint of Palace of the Vampire Queen. Because I had wanted that for decades, but I was never willing to pay the amount most people <laughs> wanted for it. But I could grab that when it came out, so that's mine. Liz? Ah, mine is the Rocky and Bullwinkle role-playing game. <laughs> that is a good one. I, I love that. That is the crown jewel of the stuff that I brought into the Mutual Married Gaming Collection. <laughs> Jim? Love, love, love that. The Mutual of Omaha Married Game Collection. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret to a, a long marriage is merge your gaming collections. Then you'll never get divorced. On the other hand, if we did, you probably would not cry any tears if I took the Brocky and Bullwinkle <laughs> game away with me. <laughs> you could be right. Yeah, have to divide the puppets. Uh, no. Uh, my prize thing I've managed to not lose and hang on through the years is the old TSR uh, War Warriors of Mars. From the, like the, the one that got, you know, shit canned right away when ERB Inc. sent them a letter. Uh, a really good friend of mine who was the president of our original war gaming group back in the 70s and I have sent that one copy back and forth to each other about every seven or eight years as a present. I've got it now. <laughs> but he's it's, like a, the world's world's greatest ERB expert and fan and I'm I'm not the world's greatest but I love ERB and it's really cool because it's like that twilight period where it's really a miniatures set of rules, but they try and tell you it's a role-playing game, but they didn't know what <laughs> role-playing games were then, and they didn't use the words role-playing games. That makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's my pride and joy. Zach? Oh, probably my, my original set of AD&D hardback books that my parents got me when I was a kid. Oh, you still have them. Aw. Oh, yeah. Are they still in? And I assume they're still in one piece. Yeah, they're pretty beat up. A lot of writing in them. I have a separate set of like nice new copies, so I can like remember what they look like when they were new. 
Yeah. Liz and Liz and I frequently talk about our Holmes books having lost their covers because they were so well used. Yeah, I have I, mine right here. My original one has no cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taped mine on with with clear tape. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah. I used duct tape. But anyway, while I still had the cover, anyhow. <laughs> but anyway, uh, right, that's the second question was what again? Okay, the second question was, what is one item in your collection that was not made for D&D that you have used in a D&D game? Okay. Well, I already mentioned about the squad leader boards, so I'm going to skip that. I'd probably say the time ship role-playing games adventure into Sodom and Gomorrah. Hmm. I use, I've used that adventure in a D&D con- just as a generic depraved city for D&D play. Mm-hmm. So that'd be it for me. Liz? Um, I used for some evil mages in the past, I have used some of the Call of Cthulhu stuff. Um, mm. Particularly some of the um, different spells that you know you can use if you worship a specific elder god you know in the main cthulhu rule book um Mm. so i've done that that's about the only thing i can think of really jim i'm drawing a blank so i'm gonna slide by on a technicality there was a little pamphlet in the late 70s called the Spellcaster's Bible, and it was not made for D&D technically because they didn't want to get sued, but it was. <laughs> a bunch, of, a little tiny digest-sized spell book full of a bunch of spells that weren't in uh, AD&D, and the spells went up to like, I don't know, 10th or 12th level, sort of like Arduin did, so it was cool to have. It was like the little golden spell book. There was an acid cloud, fourth level <laughs> acid cloud spell in that book that my uh, magic user in my brother's universe used forever. <laughs> like, like when I didn't feel like a fireball, acid cloud. Woo. Okay. Zach. A Legos. Um, I, it, <laughs> when I started playing with my son, I think he was about six. Then we had this game called Lego Horoka. And it, it's sort of a uh, D&D-based Lego game, but I actually took the Legos and used them to make... I would do it improvisationally. I would make a dungeon while we were playing in front of him, and oh, cool. I, was, I used the Holmes rules, and that, that was his introduction to the game. That's pretty cool. That is the most awesome thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and the last question was, what do we want? What What's a grail? Yeah. Yeah, what is one item that has eluded you and still is not part of your collection? Hmm, I would probably say a set that I used to have, but now I only have two figures left of it. One of the Heritage Paint and Play sets. I used to have one called Crypt of the Sorcerer, and I've always wanted to get that, get another copy of that, but people want 450 bucks for it. I'm like, I don't want it that bad. (laughs) So that would be for me, though. You, Liz? Um, Well, I'm not really much of a collector myself. There's no one thing that I really feel terrible about not having. Um, A module for the Rocky and Bullwinkle (laughs) roleplay. I don't think they made those. I mean, I enjoy the games we have in our mutual collection, but, you know, if I was on my own, I probably wouldn't go much out of my way for a whole lot. Um, I guess if I absolutely have to answer, it would be any Tom Wom box game, because I never did get any of those back in the day, and they always sounded like they were super-duper fun. Like awful green things from outer space. That's yeah, stuff. you know the the snits games and all that stuff. You know, I didn't get any of those. Okay, but I think they'd be fun. Jim, I have a theory. I think DM Kojo has decided to get us all really nice Christmas presents this Christmas, <laughs> and this is his way of figuring that out. <laughs> Don't you Funny dare you say that. <laughs> he hit, he hit the gonna, lotto or something, maybe. As soon as I read those questions, I went into Liz's study and went. You don't think he's trying to... 
all I know is he's not getting my address, so he can't get it. That, that, that's why the white box was off, because you know there's there is a limit to everything. But <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the 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 I, I like you, Mike. I once owned this uh, when I was 15 at a science fiction convention. I bought the very first version of Luzachi's Star Trek Battles. It was just a little blue Ooh. cover, uh, terrible production value miniatures for Star Trek from like 19... This would have been 1976 or so. And I owned it and we played it and somewhere in you know the decades I've lost it. And every time I get on eBay and looking for it, they're just not to be had. Ernie Gygax let one go out of his collection a year and a half or two years ago. And like your Crypt of the Saucer thing, the bidding just got insane right away. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I, I don't want it that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the you know the game that eventually became Starfleet Battles, but the very first one that was completely unlicensed was just Luzachi publishing the rules, and it came with like the little plastic starships. Back in the days of war gaming, where unless you figure unless you're a really big company, you don't have to worry about licenses or anything because it might as well just be a fan scene really i think about that convention all the time because it was a science fiction convention in louisville kentucky and they had that so i know there were white box D D sets there i just didn't know about D D in 1977 because huh. i grew up in the boonies well north mississippi boy here i'm not gonna <laughs> i know boonies well zach i think what i would really like it's something incredibly obscure um at Origins 2, Gygax ran an introductory uh, game using the, uh, the Castle Greyhawk dungeon. And he actually printed up a handout that went out that detailed the first level of the dungeon. And um, only one copy has ever been found of this. Paul Stormberg found one a few years ago. He's of the Collector's Trove. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he posted some information about it on the Achaeum. And he actually ran a few sessions with it at Gary Con a few years ago. Um, so if there was one thing that I could get my hands on, it would be a copy of that. <laughs> yeah, that, that would definitely go for money though. I can it's imagine. It's the closest that uh, up until the Castle, Castle Zagate box set, it's like the closest that uh, Gygax ever got to publishing any form of Castle Greyhawk. Mm-hmm. So Zach, are you saying you want to collect an additional original copy or you want our help in figuring out how to blackmail Paul into <laughs> Xeroxing his copy for you? Either one. <laughs> break, break into his house and yeah, take I'm, photos of the, of the, <laughs> of the sheet. Yeah. I'm more of an information collector than an actual physical artifact, so I would be happy to just have a scan or a copy of it. Okay, well, we need to Hogan's Heroes that shit for you. <laughs> Mission Impossible. Insert theme here. Okay, well, thanks for the emails. And if anyone wants to write Save or Die, where would they write us? Liz? Uh, Save or Die podcast at gmail.com. Or call our voice line at 940-536-3763. Threesod. Threesod. <laughs> And barring any announcements, we'll go to our very important commercial break, and then we'll head right into talking to Zach about the archive and his experience with Holmes Basic. It really saved our marriage. We couldn't find a single activity we'd like to do together. He's so into his skeet shooting. Pull! And I love my yoga. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons always sounded like so much fun. But with that 20-sided die, I thought, oh, brother. And all those manuals. But that's where the book comes in. Have you ever wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons but were too intimidated to try? You are not alone. D&D is a hugely popular pastime that lets you ride your imagination into a mythical world full of beasts and sorcery. But many people think D&D is too complicated. Not to worry, friends. D&D for Dummies makes it fun and easy, giving you all you need to play, including ready-made characters and maps. D&D for Dummies hooked it up. It gave me the confidence I needed to begin my journey from first-level barbarian to epic-level dungeon master. And it gave us something fun and creative that we can do together. <laughs> that too. And now, back to Dungeons & Dragons. What are you doing? It's game time. 
I think I play too much. People say it's weird. We should cut back. That's insane. Game, Mrs. Hudson is on. All right. Well, in case you weren't paying attention in the first part of the show, we have uh, the host of Xenopus Archives here, the Xenopus himself, Zach. Hi. He's been nice enough to answer some of our questions and some of Kojo's apparently but we'll start with ours now hey yeah and I'm glad you're here because longtime reader of the blog first time caller oh thank you thanks for having me <laughs> yeah it's been an awesome resource for Holmes goodness I'm glad I'm glad there's other people out there that are you know somebody that's reading it <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well before I'm, I'm serious before John Peterson came along with his book your blog was kind of it mm-hmm Anything pre-1981, really. So I mean, speaking of D&D and your experiences, how, did, how were you first exposed to D&D back in the day? So I, back when I was nine, I got my first set, D&D set for my birthday. And I had heard about D&D somewhere, and I asked my parents for the game. Um, so what they got me was the Home's Basic set. And um, the, it was the one that came with the Keep on the Borderlands module. And it had chits instead of dice. Ah, the chits! They were nice. <laughs> Which were, was completely mystifying. Yeah. And, I mean, even the whole set was mystifying to me. Uh, we couldn't figure out how to play it after I got it, because I didn't know anybody else that played. And, I, I, you know, I was confused. I somehow thought the Caves of Chaos was supposed to be the board for the game, you know, the blue map on the inside of the module. But it was so tiny. Um, so it kind of, the set kind of just languished in the corner of my room for probably like six months. And until I... We met some new neighbors, and uh, they had two sons, who one who was a little older than me and one who was a little younger. And the younger one was over at my house, um, and he mentioned the Dungeons & Dragons, so I showed him my set, and then he took me on like a quick adventure. So that was like my first experience. And then right after that, his brother started running some games for us, which were just fantastic. And um, we actually didn't even have any dice then, because I just had those chits, but nobody really had to use them. They had the home set, too. Um, so it was more just like storytelling, but with like choice, you know, we created a character and we had choices and stuff. So later I started getting all the AD&D rule books and, you know, and dice and figured out how to play for real. Mm. But the home set was my first experience. So it sounds like we, everybody here assembled all started at about that same time. Would that have been night, like 1979 or so? Well, for me, it was a little bit later. 1982 was when I got the set. Somehow my parent, that was what my parents ended up with. Even though the by that point the next basic set should have already been out. Yeah, Moldavation. there were still homes basic sets out there, like huh. for sale. It, wow! So that was kind of yeah. lucky dog for you because you got the cool one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> albeit with no dice. Uh, I, I think it was eighty-one for me, either eighty or eighty-one. I really cannot remember at this point, but yeah, I was. Uh, let's see. It probably was 81, because I think I was 11 or 12 yeah. at that and point. I, and I must say, as much as I love Holmes, I do think Mulvey was a much better explanation of how to play. Though Holmes yeah, was certainly... I, I love that set, too. My my best friend, who I ended up playing with the most, he, he had that set. So, and we yeah. used that a lot. We would, now, we would switch between... We would play Advanced Dungeons & Dragons with one set of characters, and then we would switch and play the basic and expert with like another set of characters. Well, that's cool. Because, you know, they're completely different games. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, they did kind of feel different. At least the, the Moldvay basic as, you know, opposed to Holmes or AD&D. Because I remember when I first got the the Moldvay and then the Mincer stuff later on. Um, you know, I was, I guess it was Moldvay that I got first and then Mincer afterwards, but it was a brand new box set that my parents got for me and I was looking through it and I remember being a bit disappointed that it wasn't quite the same. 
you know, I thought it would be more like Holmes and AD&D that I already had. And it's like, what, what, why? <laughs> well, I think Mold Bay was aimed at a younger demographic than Holmes was, even if it did say 12 and up on the box. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Holmes originally wrote that basically as an edited, updated OD&D, right? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to say, I mean, I while I certainly agree with you, Mike, that uh, Mulday Cook was a, a huge leap forward in publishing a version of the rules that kids could actually sit down and learn to play from over Holmes. But home, it's all relative. Holmes compared to the Little Brown books was, you know, a light year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's unarguable. You could play with Holmes without somebody there explaining it to you, probably. Yeah, as long as you're not nine. Well, yeah. <laughs> if I hadn't found the Delta Area War Gamers, I may not have stayed in, <laughs> in D&D. They really saved my bacon when it came to figuring out how to play the game and such. But anyway. Well, I guess going off on you know the tangent that we sort of started here... Uh, Zach, what kept you with Holmes Basic, despite all the later versions that came after? Well, it wasn't so much staying with it. I mean, I, I always kept my set, and I always liked it, and I would go back and read it. Um, but, I, you know, I mostly moved on after getting it initially. I moved on to AD&D and also, like, the basic expert sets I mentioned. Um, so it wasn't until I got back into playing D&D in the last 10 years that I, I got so back into the Holmes Basic set. Um, and it, you know, it was just sort of going back and looking at, you know, what I initially liked about it, and you know, realizing that there was nothing wrong with this. There's no reason that you had to go on to something else. You can play the game with mm -hmm. this, and there doesn't have you don't have to move on to something else. I think maybe at the top of the podcast, we didn't make it clear to listeners who would be unfamiliar with Xenopus Archives exactly what it is. Would you like to? give us the elevator speech for it? Yeah, I don't know if I have one. <laughs> but uh, I haven't talked to a lot of people about it in the elevator. <laughs> well, it's, just, it's just the coolest website ever. <laughs> I guess the uh, what I have the subtitle is Exploring the Underworld of Homes Basics. So it's just sort of anything about the Homes Basics set, like how it came to be created, um, you know, all of the differences between it and original D&D &D and advanced D&D &D and how it fits into that timeline. And then also like anything about um, John Eric Holmes the, who edited the set um, and his other works too and how they relate to Holmes Basic. My favorite part is the very scholarly multi-part examination of the differences between the published version and John Eric Holmes' original manuscript. Yeah. Just finding the manuscript. What's that? Just finding the manuscript was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought that was going to turn up, but um, there was a, after John Eric Holmes passed away in 2010, his family sold some materials to a uh, toy shop in Portland, Oregon. That was where he lived like the last 20 years or so of his life. Um, and the owner of that toy shop, luckily, was a Dungeons & Dragons fan, and he knew what he had. And he had, he, I don't know if he had heard of my blog or he just found it on the internet, but he ended up calling me and, um, and we talked about it and he ended up sending me a scan of the manuscript. So there were several copies of it because Holmes had prepared it and made a photocopy. Um, luckily he made like 10 copies before he sent it into um, TSR. So his family still had some of these copies and that was what uh, I ended up with a scan of one of those which was just great because we could see exactly what he sent in and then I could compare it in detail to the published rule book. Which is a good thing because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's always been a lot of debate of how much did Gary Gygax change or not change. Before. Yeah, exactly. And um, I was a, what was surprising to me is how little was actually changed compared to what Holmes actually wrote. They gave okay. him a lot of latitude to come up with stuff, and then Gygax didn't even change it. Mm -hmm. So some some things like you know, um, for like the ten second combat round that's found in basic D and D, Holmes put that in there. It wasn't explicit in any earlier form of D and D, and then 
it became like the standard and they kept it in the not in not in advanced Dungeons Dragons, which is what's surprising, because you know, when Gygax edited the basic set, you know, he put on these references to advanced D D, but it had a one minute combat round. But then when the basic set line continued, they they kept with the ten second round that Holmes had put in. Hmm. So he, he you know, it was kind of surprising to me that he got to make these changes that Gygax did not overrule at the time. Hmm. I cannot for the life of me keep some of that minutiae straight in my head because uh, I was a teenager when I learned to play and I was taught to play by older college guys. And so there was never any distinction between AD&D and basic D&D or any of that stuff. We were just playing D&D and, and I just ran it the way I it was run for me. So it was like 10 second combat. Wherever that came from, that's what they ran. <laughs> oh, and I agree. I mean, you don't need to, to get into these details in order to play the game. I mean, when I was a kid, it was just D and D to me. I mean, like I said, I on the show before. A lot of the times we would use, you know, I can't count the number of times I ran Keep on the Borderlands with AD and D, or Studying the Hill Giant Chief, which was my first module I bought by itself with the Holmes Basic set, albeit everything jacked up to sixth level or what I thought would be sixth level. Yeah, that's great. I didn't mean to make it sound like I don't find it extremely interesting, the kind of discussion of what came from where and when. I love that stuff. Yeah. It's more of an old man's game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the kids just play and the old guys sit around and like, look at like, you know, where things came from and the differences between. Not that you're old. (laughs) Oh, I am old. (laughs) We we used to roll our dice uphill in the snow both ways. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> had to forge our own daggers to have weapons. So yeah, no, it's 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 fun to I guess like you say it's the more adult you know we get the older we get the more it's interesting to see what was going on behind the scenes as it were. Yeah, and you know not only to know where something came from but why you know it's like what was it that made you know Holmes or Gygax or whoever you know, decide to do a rule this way, you know, was there anything, you know, specific that happened in a game session where they thought, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this makes more sense, and now that's why the rule is this. You know, those those stories are always just so neat to come across, and, you know, it gives a lot of, you know, context that you might not have had otherwise. So, that's oh, something yeah. that's pretty cool. We were very lucky to have Gygax on the internet for like the last 15 years of his life. I wish Holmes had been able to become yeah. part of the community like at Dragon's Foot or something like that. Oh, yeah. At least his, his son Chris is, is um, participating so now. Um, I've been in contact with him. Yeah, we all had him on the show recently. He, yes, that's right. I listened to that. He had a lot of cool info. So... Yeah, he played in all those games with his dad, so he has a lot of insight into how he ran his games. Yeah, can't have Holmes himself. His son certainly knows about probably about as much as the man did himself as far as how he ran his own games and such, his campaign setting. Zach, do you think you're going to make North Texas Con a regular annual trip? I'd like to. So we'll, we'll just I'll just have to see what's going on with my... with. Uh, my schedule next year. I just want to meet you long enough to shake your hand and thank you for doing the blog. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. <laughs> so what made you decide to form the archive as a blog? Was, I mean, yeah, it was a slow process. I, you know, I used to just be involved in, um, dragon's foot and some of the other forums. So, and I was, I started working on stuff, the kind of stuff I post on the blog now, I started working on back when I would just read the forums. It sort of all started when I, I'd, I had known that Holmes was the editor of the basic set, but I didn't really know anything about him. Um, then I heard that he wrote this book, Maze of Peril, that was like a D&D novel. And I tracked down a copy of that and I read that. And uh, I also asked Gygax on Dragon's Foot whether Holmes had written the sample dungeon. And he confirmed that he had. So, And I noticed similarities between the Maze of Peril and the Sample Dungeon. So I started to get interesting. Um, this was interesting. And I um, I wrote a review of Maze of Peril that I posted on Dragon's Foot. 
Um, I, I, I started working on a bibliography of Holmes, all his different writings that he's done. Um, posted that up. Um, I realized that there were different printings of the basic set that had the the original printing of the basic set has some different art in it than the than the later printing, the one that I had. Hmm. I made a list of the differences between those two printings. So that was that was I was you know slowly working on this kind of stuff, and then I don't know around I guess it was it's almost five years ago now is when I started the blog. I just I I guess I was starting to read other people's blogs like Ragnardia at the time, mm-hmm. and I was like you know I could do this too. I think I have enough stuff I could I could keep it up regularly. So I just I got started then. So I made a little website and then I started the blog to go along with it. So and I've just been able to continue it kind of amazing that i can you know find enough to talk about the uh but there's a lot there's a lot there and there's a lot of people that are interested in it i've found that's an awesome resource it's amazing how many bloggers there are and other people in you know making osr games that all started with the home's basic set well what i appreciate the most about what you do zach it's the same reason i appreciate john peterson it's the scholarship because you know what dragon's foot and the other forums are like there you know there's an endless supply of people who think they know what's what and what happened when and will just say the most erroneous information possible and they they because they heard it somewhere and the scholarship helps you slice and dice do all that well actually this is the facts yes yeah yeah i definitely try to always you know point to stuff quote things do you have any some basis yeah, do you have any of Holmes's uh, stuff that he gave to alarms and excursions? Oh yeah, I was uh, able to get copies of those from Lee Gold. Um, I don't know how many years ago. I think it was before I even started the blog. She photocopied oh. them for me. Now she's offering up. Um, you can you can actually buy PDFs from her of all of the original issues of Alarms Excursions. Oh really. Yeah, she just started I, offering that recently. I mean, are you I, kidding? Holy no, I'm not. No, if you go to the if you go to their website, um, there's information on there. I think it's like two dollars an issue. So if you get if you want a bunch of issues, it can get expensive. Because I, I think I know what we'll be buying. <laughs> two dollars an issue is way the hell cheaper than what they are on eBay. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's fantastic. You know, all the way back to number one. You heard it here first, or we heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think I've heard of some people buying them on um, on the OD and D discussion board. Somebody mentioned that they've gotten some, so it's definitely they're definitely out there. We'll try and put that link on the show notes too. Then ah, you beat me to it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, since you've already mentioned it, what did you think of Holmes's uh, book, Fantasy Role Playing Games? Oh, I love that book. I have a copy of it, of course. Um, it's a great survey of the of role-playing games and um, sort of the whole shebang at, as they existed, like around 1980 or so. Yeah, and it's literally a snapshot of the industry. Yeah, so and he yet- has re- reviews of most of the games that were out at that time, at least the, the major ones. Um, he, t- you know, he has a whole... He loved miniatures, um, he had thousands of them, and so he has a chapter in there on miniatures. It, and it, I think it would have been useful for somebody at the time if they didn't know anything about miniatures, because he talks about priming them and things like that. Um, and then he's got a whole introductory fantasy role-playing game in there, which is so basically he took like basic D and D and made it even more basic. Um, it's just one chapter in there, but it's got everything so you could run like a simple game. And and there's even a sample dungeon with it, which is great because it's one of the only other complete adventures that we have written by Holmes. No chits, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's a. I think I believe it's a D6 game, so you just use uh, what everybody would have a six-sided dice. Mm-hmm. No chits, all crits. <laughs> as, well, as opposed to some of the things we were discussing, those copies of that are not that expensive or hard to track down if listeners wanted to go find it. No, yeah, you can find it. Um, I believe I got mine on like a Libris or a books like about ten years ago or so. Um, it was, it. I don't know 
what who the publisher was exactly um, in terms of their size, but it definitely it definitely was sold. I believe it got into like mass market distribution. Yeah, so, we picked up ours on Amazon. I think used for wasn't that expensive. Like I think it was only maybe. published in hardback. I never have seen a paperback copy, but um, it definitely shows up a lot in um, in those uh, used booksellers online. And there's a there's a U.S. and a U.K. printing of it, which I only realized recently because somebody the dust they're exactly the same except the dust jackets are different. Oh, okay. I was about to say, did they turn armor into armor? I somehow ended up with the UK version, which has a picture of the basic set on the back cover, but the US one on the dust jacket has a big picture of Holmes on the back cover. Huh. That should have been my answer to Kojo's email, because all my life, I've just wanted to be able to see the UK Games Workshop version of Holmes Basic, with the head completely different cover and art. I've never even seen a copy. I don't know what it looks like. Yeah, the uh, the initial printing, the later printing had the right had the U.S. the same as the U.S. one, and the and the book actually has the U.S. cover on the back, the one we're all familiar with, with the Sutherland art. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's on the back of the dust jacket of his book. Well, what was the most surprising thing you learned about uh, Holmes's manuscript when you were comparing it to the published basic? Well, probably like I mentioned before, like how little was actually changed. Gygax went through, and there were some, you know, there were places where he they cut out words, and he Gygax tended to add like little clarifying sentences at the end of paragraphs, but for the most part, he didn't change anything radically that was in there. They cut out probably the biggest change was they cut out some of the monsters that Holmes included. I think he, I think it it was it, they tended to cut out some of the wilderness monsters, perhaps because they thought the game. The introductory set would just be focused on dungeons. So Holmes had um, he had Ents in there and Dryads and Centaurs, and those were cut out. Holmes had a lot of the different man types, too, from OD&D, um, and most of those were cut out, too. They only left in Bandits and Berserkers. Okay. But generally, you know... Most and Vampires. Mo- most of the stuff that Holmes included... You know, especially where he filled in gaps from that were present in original D and D, like the combat system was not as much clearer in Holmes than in original D and D. Oh, I guess yes. didn't change that very much. <laughs> was that one little young dragon in the original manuscript? Which little young dragon? The one that ended up in the game. I just, in my imagination, there was a discussion at some point where they're like, "Well." This only goes to third level, so it shouldn't have dragons in it, but it's called Dungeons and Dragons, so we better stick one in. Instead. And then they stuck vampires too, which Yeah, and purple worms. <laughs> like, ah <laughs> Yeah, I mean well, I always thought that was great. I Holmes put Vampires a are kind of iconic. <laughs> yeah. That's what he said in um I think it was in his he, he wrote an article for Dragon magazine about about the basic set. And I think he said in there that like, you know, it's called Dungeon Dragons, so I had to put dragons in there. And I guess that was his rationale, too, for some of the other high-level monsters, because he wanted to give people a flavor for what, you know, what the flavor of the game was. He wanted them to be exposed to it, so he didn't want to cut out too much of the iconic monsters. Better, better learn how to run away, first thing. <laughs> yeah, and, he, and we know from Chris and, and the Maze Apparel that like the low-level characters in his game encountered a purple worm, because that... In in the in the maze of peril, there's this purple worm going around on the first level of the dungeon, and the characters just have to avoid it. And that actually was from their games. Hmm. And apparently, at some point, they defeated the purple worm. I don't, I didn't hear the details, but they, uh, Chris did mention that. Didn't Chris tell us guys when we had him on that he was how he was responsible for how that octopus ended up in the cave because it was just like a bedtime story and his I dad think so. and his dad asked him what's the next monster and he's like octopus <laughs> how <laughs> to get there yeah and that's a neat thing because in he wrote he wrote a pellucidar book edgar rice burroughs pellucidar setting and there's a octopus in an underwater river in that book, and then there's one in the sample dungeon, so it's neat to see that that motif occurring in more than one place in his work works. Oh, that underwater river in the home sample dungeon, 
that I just fell in love with that concept when I first got the game and read through the book. It's like that is so cool. And a whole bunch of my homemade dungeons after that, somehow or another, there was an <laughs> underground river that appeared at one point in many of them. It's like that is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I did that too, and it's amazing when you go back and look at like dungeons from around that time period. You can tell like people must have been influenced by that sample. <laughs> Everybody's got a river. <laughs> yeah, and the river, you know, it goes from like room to room, and like will carry people from one place to another. Well, I mean, you can make the ec ecological argument, which I'm sure so many people were thinking at the time was, well, they've oh, got to have a water source. <laughs> But I think it was more, speaking as a DM, it was more, you know, aha, you went into a dungeon, you weren't expecting a river, but there's a river, how are you going to get across it? <laughs> yes. So, I freely admit that. Well, do you still play Holmes Basic today? And if so, how often? I don't play it regularly. I, I've been using it with my son for, like, one-on-one -on -one games. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would wish we played more often than we do, but there always seems like there's so many other things competing for attention. Yeah. That, what, that, that dynamic you're talking about where you take a, a small child and introduce them to fantasy role-playing games, that is, is slowly... I'm not a father, I don't have any kids, but that is slowly becoming my favorite thing on Earth, like when a youngin shows up on the table and you get to see their eyes light up. Mm -hmm. Well, I just... I don't, we don't have kids either, but just thinking about, you know, when I was a 10 or 11 years old, if my dad had introduced me to D&D, &D, that would have been the most awesome moment of my life. It's so a two-way street. I, you can tell us, Zach, if, but I'm, I'm sure in advance that it's like this. The unbridled, uh, unholstered imagination at that age, I, I get more out of it than they get from me. Is it like that with your son? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. Because I'll be sitting there going, okay, that was good. I'm writing that down and sticking it into the adventure now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Don't worry, he's definitely giving me ideas for, like, uh, you know, how, like, I'll just interacting with him, you know, I'll think of something else to put into the adventure, like, while we're playing. I also find that, you know, like 10, 12, you don't generally have to teach that age group how to be a murder hobo. It comes pretty natural. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been lucky enough too to uh, we, I've been able to run some mini campaigns for him and his cousins when we get together. They live pretty far away from us, but so we were actually able to take like create characters at first level and like take them up a few levels and like play a few different scenarios. And of course, I started with the sample dungeon, the Zen, uh, the Xenopus dungeon from the basic oh, yeah. set. Yeah, I can't count the number of times I've run that as the first adventure, either as a one shot or start a campaign or something. When Liz and I were uh, playtesting the Castles and Crusades RPG way back in 03 or 04, that was my initial adventure because I figured if it can run with Holmes' basic sample dungeon and work well, then it's probably succeeding in where Troll Lord wants this game to go. So, Well, let me, let me pose as a listener that's going to write an email because I bet we get this email anyway, Zach. Um, as, as you run these Holmes Basic games for your son and sometimes his cousins, do you have you run into the situation? Are these all just one-offs and start again every time, or do you eventually run into the position of, okay, people have leveled up to fourth level now. Now what do we do? Okay, well, so with the with the one-on-one -on -one games I was running with at home, I was using the Holmes Basic rules, and I think I started him at fourth level because he was playing by himself. And for the higher levels, I just I would always just go to the original D and D rules. So he was playing a fighter, yes. so there wasn't a whole lot to add in. <laughs> um, now, when I when I ran I ran the game that went from session to session, I had actually given his older cousin uh, a copy of the Menser basic rules because I thought that would be the easiest one for her to read on her own. Right, right. And mm -hmm. I so I sent them back with her, and then. And she loved it, and she was trying to get her friends to play at school, but she couldn't. So then the next time we saw them, they were all, they were, she was all ready to play, and she's a great player. Um, so we actually, for those games, we actually used the Menster rules because she was more familiar with them. But I, I do bring in stuff from Holmes Basic. Like I, I pretty much use the initiative system based on dexterity. Mm -hmm. Is she a murder hobo? Uh, yeah, I mean, kids just... <laughs> They they just they know exactly they understand you know you just go in there you fight the monsters and 
get their treasure. <laughs> well, cool. No, no, no arguments or lengthy discussions about what to do with the captured goblin prisoners like in our game, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Of course, we only have three alignments. That's pretty easy to do as opposed to more complex systems. Just oh. saying. You're just per- you're just starting Holmes, stuff. <laughs> Holmes basic is not complex with five alignments. <laughs> <laughs> Have more arguments. We're having one now. See? Jack and mate. Hey, you keep poking the tiger, buddy. You're gonna end up on a couch tonight. <laughs> if I'm lucky. Just have to oh, stick in the I'm guest sorry. bedroom with all my gaming stuff. Oh, okay. I'm very sorry that five alignments is too much for you to handle, Mike. (laughs) So let's ask our guest. (laughs) What's your favorite alignment system, Zach? Three, five. Uh, I'm a fan of the of the AD and D uh, nine point alignment system. I just I like the flavor of all the different alignments. I mean, I don't know how much I actually use them when I'm playing, but just. Just those names, you know, like chaotic good, lawful evil. They're so iconic. Or like that line from Knights of the Dinner Table. Isn't that a bit dishonest? Of course it's dishonest. We're chaotic evil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, just it, if you were a certain age when you encountered that, it just gets burned into your brain. Mm. Well, that is clear, concise, and well presented, Zach. You're no. wrong, of course, but you know. <laughs> You're all wrong! Bah! Am I the only guy that just doesn't care? Like, whatever I'm playing, it's fine with me. DCC, it's three alignments. That's great. Yay, let's go. Three alignments. If, if I'm sitting in a homes game and it's five alignments, I'm fine with that. If it's Gamma World and there's no alignments, I'm cool. It's kind of like with Liz and the Cobalts. You know, it, it, it really doesn't matter that much to me either, but we've kind of made it an an on on podcast thing, you know, I gotta bob out something, I gotta tell somebody somebody's wrong, you know, you just kinda grow into it. <laughs> well, I mean I'm all for, you know, doing things for entertainment value, especially on the podcast, <laughs> but I mean you know what they're like on Dragon's Foot, man. It's it'll turn into a nuclear knife fight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like I'm picking on Dragon's Foot and I'm not. It's you know, the internet in general. <laughs> at large. People argue on the internet? <laughs> no way. Recently, you did up some Holmes reference sheets for Free RPG Day. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the, I made up a 10-page PDF um, that you can find on my um, site. It's a free download. And these are reference sheets. Um, they're each a single page that you can use to they have to compile the rules for Homes Basic. I've been working on them for years. Um, and I just finally got enough of them done sort of to put together into a package. So I decided to put it up on Free RPG Day. And so it's called Homes Ref, which is the ref refers to both referee and to reference sheet. And it's sort of a tribute to the old Judges Guild's ready reference sheets. Which Sweet. Were- yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, was there is there any major differences between those two products or between, is this which the, the, the judges guild ready ref sheet say for instance i've got the ready ref sheets it is um getting will yours have some information on it that i don't have with those since one was for od and d the other one's for holmes yeah the the i mean the monster lists that are are different i i managed to get all the monsters from homes basic there's a, about 80 of them onto a single sheet Wow, that's <laughs> kind of that's a small font. Tough. Yeah, the font's pretty small. The um, microfish. It's not I mean, that bad, especially uh, given the the text and layout of the original Holmes Basic. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I have um, so there's treasure sheets. I have a I have a character creation sheet. Um, that takes you through all the steps for making a character, and then there's a blank sheet after it with, that you can fill the information into. Um, there's, I, I, I have a spell list for the magic users and clerics, and I have a list of the treasures. So it basically has 
enough rules. You, if you didn't have the rule book, you could play the game just using these sheets. Although it's really meant to supplement the rule book rather than replace it. Sort of like that perforated sheet in the back of the Holmes rule book. Yeah, exactly. Red like large. expanded version. Yeah, the cleric sheet, though, I really enjoyed that one because you go up to level six and you supplement the higher level spells with the OD and D, you know, the volume one and the Greyhawk supplements to, you know, get you higher up. And it's like, that is so cool. And that's what I used to do. I didn't have volume one, but I had Greyhawk. And that was how I, you know, got into higher levels using Holmes back in the day before I got AD and D and stuff. So I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just, with, because there's less cleric spells, like, it was just going to fill up half the page. So I was like, yeah. well, just go to the higher levels. So now the magic users, I only have levels one to three right now, but I'm going to do another page for levels four to six. It's just, yeah. uh, I, I, mean, I just kind of do it in my spare time. So I usually only get a few of them done a year. You had me at Futura and alternating white and gray bars on the tables. <laughs> yeah, ah, you layout people. <laughs> hey, it looks just like the home stuff. <laughs> yeah, Futura font, that's my favorite. I'm serious about my alternating gray and white table results. I kept I kept sticking those into DCC projects and Joe Goodman kept yanking them out and finally with MCC he just gave up and left them in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just too much. Because I'm putting so much text on a page, I just find it makes it a lot easier to read. Yeah. Yes, with us, unfortunately, most of us older gamers, we need bigger fonts. So. Yeah, they didn't have that in the actual Holmes Basic rulebook, but the Keep on the Borderlands module had some of that. The alternating. Oh yeah, it's an AD and D layout trick, but I just yeah, I like it for the same reason we all like Holmes Basic. It's nostalgia. Okay. Well. We appreciate you coming on the show and sharing us with us your information on how you got Cinepus Archives started and some of the things you've got over there. Thank you so Thank much. You. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, one other thing I should probably mention is that the um, and you and I'm sure you covered this in the Chris Holmes podcast is that um, Eric Holmes' uh, novel Maze of Peril, which I mentioned before, and his related short stories from Dragon Magazine are going to be reissued. Um, as a compilation called Tales of Peril, and that should be coming out in the next few months. Black Blade Publishing is putting out the the reissue. Yeah, I missed that seminar at North Texas because I had to run a game, but that's what they were talking about. Yes, yep, that's, I was there. <laughs> See? <laughs> we are very excited. Well, I'm very excited. I don't know about these guys. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're interested, email blackblade.com and go, where is this stuff? <laughs> So hopefully it'll come out quicker. All right. Yeah, he well, just wants to do it right, so he's he's they're taking their time making sure it's everything's perfect with it. Oh yeah. And up till now I bought mazes and perils and scanned it in for my computer to read to me. And I went and cut and pasted his uh Boyern's Earth stories from Dragon in there too, so I could just keep it all in one compilation. But this one's going to be even better, so because it'll have the alarms and excursion stuff in it. Yeah, so. and there's a, and there's even a new, I say new, but it was written a long time ago. A new Boyer and Sarah story. Woohoo! New to my us. Yeah, my favorite dark elf, Zerla. <laughs> All right. Well, in our tradition, we are going to head down the dusty trail of Bill Bixby Hulk fame from the 1970s thumbing our way hitchhiking and how are we heading down the road this time liz i am heading out the same way i came in riding on that underground river Woohoo! and you jim well since you said at the top of the episode i'm the cave octopus i'm going to use my octopus skills if octopus can get out of jars i'm going to figure out how to get out of this dungeon and get back to my people <laughs> Ha-ha. Cry freedom for Octopi. I'm tired of all the first-level adventures. I want to go home. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're good, the first dozen of them, but when you eat them all the time, they're just not as good anymore. You want to give it a try, Zach? Or just wave at us as we head down the road? <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll disappear in an um, explosion of green flame. Ooh! Oh, nice! <laughs> 
just like just like the Xenopus uh, in the sample dungeon. Yeah. Well, I would have gone down the road with everybody too, but I got captured by pirates who are going to ransom me out of the grotto. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks again, Zach, for coming on the show, and we'll see everybody at one twenty-five. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you. Rearc. And we're out. Yay. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Samurai theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones, and you can find them at MississippiBones.Bandcamp.com. Guests of the Samurai Podcast stay at the luxurious Tower of Xenopus. With its exotic grottos and undersea river rides, you're always just one encounter away from the height of fine dining at the Tower of Xenopus. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. See, that's hilarious. You gave the big speech about how we always drop the five seconds in, but you never do it for email. So <laughs> in between you asking the question and Liz answering the question is where I drop the bumper every time. <laughs> You're like, do we have any emails? Bumper, 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 bumper. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> or Liz's, no. No, no emails. <laughs> okay.